there are some people who are doing okay, but there's also unquestionably people who are living on basically the barest minimum of food with no protein and very little in terms of quantity. My name is Andrew and welcome to the aftermath. Dynamic zero COVID. These are the words currently being used as a front to starve and deprive millions of Chinese citizens as I speak these words. Why are lockdowns and restrictions there so stringent? After all, it's been two years since the start of the pandemic. But the Chinese government is still holding fast to its policy of minimizing cases at the expense of anything and everything else. Today we're going to talk about why. In this episode, I am joined by Vivian Wong, a China correspondent for the New York Times. We discuss the draconian pandemic measures that China has instilled in Shanghai and Beijing, as well as the propaganda campaign that they're using to supplement it. Hope you enjoy. All right, should we, uh, should we, shall we begin? Sure. All right. Vivian Wong, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast. Of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, if you don't mind me asking, would you say would you say that like in terms of how easy it's been to report? Would you say that it's gotten harder to report with the advent of the lockdowns? Um. Yeah, I mean it's it's always been hard. Um, I mean, and you know, <laughs> even when places are locked down. Since so many of us are not in the country, it doesn't make that much of a difference on that level. And in some ways, the outpouring on social media gives us a lot more material to work with. Um, but you know, at the same time, the censors crank up their work. The government cranks up their sort of messaging about don't talk to foreign media, don't spread rumors. Um, so you know, it cuts both ways. Yeah. So it's. What you, so what I'm getting is like the experience is less like talking to people and more trying to find what you can online before it gets censored. Yeah, I mean, then then we try to talk to those people. Um, you know, we don't just use what we see online. We have to verify things ourselves. But we, when more people are posting on social media, obviously you have more of a starting off point. All right, so I want to begin by um, introducing a little bit of context, because obviously the subject of this episode uh, relates to a lot of the really harsh measures um, put in place, um, like pandemic-induced lockdowns in Beijing and Shanghai. But I just wanted to ask right now, how severe were the lockdowns in, say, like the more metropolitan areas of China in the early days of the pandemic, say, like, March 2020, like how stringent were the measures compared to like the era of lockdowns that they're facing right now? There was definitely a good deal of concern in the early days of the pandemic when Wuhan was locked down. I think you saw the entire country on high alert and a lot of people across the country were reporting certain restrictions on their ability to move around, even though, if you recall, the actual spread of infections beyond Wuhan was, was really not that much. Um, but, you know, if you want to talk about Shanghai in particular, for example, what made the current lockdown so shocking to many residents was that it had avoided 
any sort of similar lockdown throughout the entire pandemic, including in those early uncertain months. So even when the coronavirus was still very unknown, was still very scary to many people, Shanghai had really focused on keeping the economy running, keeping daily life running to the extent possible. And throughout the past years, whenever they did detect cases, they were really proud of the fact that they did precise lockdowns of certain blocks or even certain buildings, uh, because there was really a sense that it was too important to lock down. Could you explain some of the situation surrounding food, especially when it comes to like the lockdowns in Shanghai, for example, like, obviously, this is not the norm in terms of like, people not really being able to go outside and like, buy food. So what does the situation there look like in terms of people having to be able to access food to be able to eat? Well, at the worst time, which was the initial weeks of the lockdown when people weren't ready, um, you know, they couldn't go to grocery stores and a lot of the delivery platforms were unable to deliver food um, in part because delivery workers were locked down or there were just a lot of logistical issues that came up. And so the only real avenues of food that people had available to them at first were um, either packages that were delivered by their neighborhood officials. And so they were just reliant on you know, having good neighborhood officials who are on top of things uh, or tango, like group buying, um, in which case, you know, they would sort of rally a bunch of people together in their complex to put in a bulk order because the, the supermarkets and the delivery platforms, frankly, were just too overwhelmed to fill in, you know, one or two orders. You had to be sending in a mass order for the, for the um, supplier to have an incentive to respond. Um, but then, you know, for people who, for various reasons, couldn't get into these these group buying schemes. They were out of luck. Even if you were in a group buying scheme, you know, you saw reports of people who had to get up at five, six in the morning to be the first ones online to put in an order. Um, so it, it was really quite chaotic. And the end result was that you saw a lot of people on Weibo saying, you know, I'm eating one meal a day. I'm eating one meal every two days. I am very, very hungry. And this was clearly shocking for a lot of people um, that this was happening in 21st century Shanghai. So maybe that like that's the boiling point that has been large, like largely motivating a much larger degree of the population to be expressing discontent that hasn't really been directed at the government from its populace as seen before. Yeah, I mean, these are literally bread and butter issues. These are issues that affect people's daily lives. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to get angry about abstract political concepts, but when you're not eating, you're going to be upset. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that just begs the question of why, because when you like when someone were to look at a lot of the really harsh and draconian measures that have been put in place in these cities, and then you look back at how things were like how precise the measures had been previously and how focused it was on keeping the economy float. Like what, what were the events that triggered these extremely harsh measures from like around last month to begin in the first place? Well, in Shanghai, the fact was that cases were really surging and they were surging to a level that was beyond what this precise approach, more targeted approach was able to control, at least 
least in the eyes of the government, right? Because the, the question of what's controllable is also contingent on what you think the level of control needs to be, which is just another way of saying that in many other places, perhaps the level of spread that Shanghai was seeing, even at the peak of cases, might have been deemed acceptable. But of course, in China, where they're still chasing this dynamic zero policy, it had gotten to a level that policymakers decided was was simply out of hand and they couldn't allow Shanghai to continue using this more targeted approach anymore. Yeah, so you mentioned something in your answer that I would like to expand on because I think it's kind of interesting. Do you think that like the idea of a large outbreak, like the number of outbreaks that's necessary for China to justify having really harsh measures, what do you say that like that like general ballpark number is orders of magnitude lower than it would be in the West if like when it comes to like the number of cases you would see in a certain area that would be a necessary justification to lock down to that degree? Oh, definitely. I mean, you've seen smaller cities, smaller towns around China in the last few weeks lock down after detecting one or two cases or not even detecting any cases, but hearing that a confirmed case had passed through their town or there was a suspected case in their town and then they've gone into lockdown because the key is that China is still chasing dynamic zero. Um, There's a lot of semantic maneuvering. They say it's not zero COVID. Dynamic zero, they say, is basically just stamping out outbreaks as quickly as possible when they occur, not chasing an actual number of zero. But effectively, the idea in many local officials' minds is that there cannot be any transmissions in their community. Yeah, so there was one quote from one of your articles that I thought was rather interesting, so I'm going to quote it right now. China's leader, Xi Jinping, has staked his legitimacy on successful control of the pandemic, a message that has only been amplified ahead of this fall when he is expected to claim an unprecedented third term. Why would you say that the Chinese government, and especially Xi, consider pandemic control to be so important to their legitimacy? I think there are two levels to their reasoning, one of which is a public health reasoning, which I actually think many experts would say does have some justification, which is that if China were to let the virus rip and to release controls, there is really a sense that the medical system could be overwhelmed. The vaccination rate among the elderly is still relatively low compared to many other countries. Um, China's ICU infrastructure, its general hospital infrastructure is probably not enough to sustain the amount of hospitalization they would see. So there is a real concern about what would happen to the health system if they were to take a more relaxed approach to the virus. Now, as a side note to that, there is the question of, it's been two years of a global pandemic, why haven't they done a better job at vaccinating the elderly? Why haven't they done a better job at building up their medical infrastructure? So it's not to say that it's, you know, perhaps right that they are in this position, but that is the position that they're in right now. Uh, But the second element of it is much more political, which is that from the early days of the pandemic, when they were able to get the outbreak in Wuhan under control, and then you saw the virus really wreaking devastation on the rest of the world, especially in Western democracies, China undertook a really aggressive propaganda campaign that has continued throughout the past two years of saying, look at what a disaster these other countries have. 
we are the only country that has been able to save lives to keep the virus under control. And that is proof that our system of governance, very top down, um, you know, led by a top leader, is a superior model. After you've committed to two years of that type of messaging, it's really hard to change that messaging in any way that would then seem to undermine what you were saying before. So they're kind of backed in a corner. They're kind of stuck in continuing to say, we have to stick to zero COVID because we've said that this is what makes us great. Yeah. And there's another aspect of them sort of like the having backed themselves into a corner uh, that I would like to ask you. To what extent do you think the extremely harsh measures have been motivated by the Chinese government's unwillingness to use Western vaccines, for example? It's an interesting question. Um, There have been a lot of studies comparing vaccine efficacy, of course. I think that, you know, public health experts will tell you that even the Chinese-made vaccines, even, you know, traditional non-mRNA vaccines have proven to have efficacy against severe illness and against death. Of course, how effective, how effective compared to the Western made vaccines, that's a different question. But I I would say that sort of the the risks of, of death, of illness to China, if they were to let it rip, to not use these very harsh restrictions still come largely from the proportion of elderly who are not vaccinated rather than what vaccine they've used. So I think that, um, you know, if if China were willing to let in Western made vaccines, the situation might be different. People might have, you know, there might be some people who don't want to use the Chinese vaccines who would be more willing to get vaccinated if the Western made vaccine were available. But at the end of the day, you know, virologists I've talked to say that anything is better than nothing. And the problem right now is that there still a good chunk of the population that has nothing. How effective would a vaccine mandate be there like among the elderly compared to what they're doing right now? It's a really interesting political question that a lot of people have asked and there doesn't seem to be a good answer to, which is why hasn't China put in place a vaccine mandate? You know, they've clearly shown that they're willing to use pretty hardball tactics in many other aspects of life. And so why haven't they just required everyone to get vaccinated? Um, I don't know if there's a good answer to that. I mean, my guess would just be that there there still remains a good deal of vaccine hesitancy among people in China. China has sort of a history of vaccine safety related scandals um, and the leadership may be making the calculus that that would simply be too unpopular and too politically risky to be worth it. Um, And then, you know, you add on top of that, the fact that until recently, China really did do a good job controlling the virus. And so for a lot of people, there was no sense of urgency to get vaccinated. And so if you had said, well, you have to go do it, a lot of people would have said, why? You know, and I think that that would have added to the risk of uh, popular discontent. How, how important in like, with respect to like, how the Chinese government views this, how important would you say like the, the general popularity of their measures is when like when it comes to their calculus in terms of what measures to employ for these lockdowns? 
it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg question because it is true that generally it seems that the zero COVID policy has enjoyed pretty widespread support over the past two years. Um, but at the same time, the Chinese censorship and propaganda machine is so powerful and so effective that they have in some cases really made that the only option for many people, which is to rally behind this policy. So it's kind of hard to tell you know, what came first and sort of who is responding to whom. It's definitely a little bit of a symbiotic relationship. Um, but the question that many of us are watching closely now is from Shanghai, you are seeing a level of popular anger and discontent that we haven't seen since the early days in Wuhan. And as public opinion shifts, will we see the leadership respond to that and calibrate their approach? Um, so far, we haven't really seen that. You know, we've seen small adjustments in Shanghai, for example, with officials coming out and apologizing for some measures that, that were deemed too harsh or saying, you know, we're, we're going to stop separating children from their families when they're infected. Um, but at a macro level, we have not seen any sort of, um, you know, real shifts in policy. When it comes to like the much larger discontent uh, for, on the part of the Shanghai people, would you mind elaborating a little bit on the degree to which the discontent on the internet, for example, is much larger than it was before? I think it's just the fact that you're seeing more of it break through and more of it survive. So, you know, when you've seen lockdowns in Xi'an, for example, in, in January of this year, people were also upset. They were also posting online, but then the censors got to work and it got scrubbed relatively quickly. Um, but I think just the, the volume, um, both you know, in terms of how loud people in Shanghai are being and also in terms of how much they're expressing themselves has gotten to a level that has sort of overwhelmed the censors, at least for a time. So you know, there was a very viral video, Voices of April, um, a few weeks ago that was circulated widely on the Chinese internet that was just audio clips of people in Shanghai begging for help or expressing their anger. Um, and, you know, censors were, were all over that trying to get rid of it. And yet there were so many people resharing it, reposting it that, you know, it lived much longer than it normally would have. Um, so, you know, I think that, that just, it's, it's so hard to, you know, we always have to be careful about using the Chinese internet to measure public opinion. Um, but, you know, that is one metric that we have, and, and it definitely just seems different from what we've seen before. Yeah, maybe there's like, maybe there's a breakdown in terms of correlation. Like, what do you, what would you say are the odds that like, the the people that tend to like, are be more active in terms of complaining on the internet, are also people that can afford to like, be on the internet for longer, say, like, people that are more affluent, and like, can afford to spend that much time there. There's definitely an element that part of the reason we're seeing so much more anger coming from Shanghai than, for example, from Jilin, which was also locked down for nearly two months, um, is that Shanghai is a super cosmopolitan city. It's a city with many well-educated people who know how to use the internet. It's also a city that you know, has had a reputation for being, you know, the negative stereotype is, is sort of being arrogant or stuck up. And the more positive stereotype is that, you know, these are people who are more willing to defend their rights, have more of an expectation of 
what the government owes them. Um, and so these are people who are more willing to, to stand up for themselves and to not just say, well, this is what the government says is going to happen, so we're going to accept it. Um, and, and sure, there, there might be a relationship between, you know, affluence or sort of privilege and being able to spend time on the internet complaining. But you also saw a lot of complaints on Weibo from, from migrant workers saying, you know, I've been stuck in this dormitory with eight other people in my room and we can't get any food. I mean, you know, anybody who had a cell phone and was having trouble was, was taking to the internet to express themselves. Yeah. So even if there is a correlation, there is still a high probability that that reflects a general trend of like discontentment among like sort of all classes there. I think so. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, even if you had only more affluent people posting the fact that this was sort of spread so widely reposted by so many people, I think speaks to how much this really resonated with people. And, and it wasn't just, you know, ordinary residents who were being locked down, who we saw expressing complaints. We saw leaked audio recordings of government officials themselves saying, I'm exhausted. This method seems ineffective. I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And that's, that's another sort of aspect about the way that the Chinese government basically backed themselves into a corner where now, even if they wanted to, like, they, they wouldn't be able to flip a switch and undo a lot of what's been happening. So, like, for example, what do you think the Chinese government will do moving forward with all of these measures and consideration? Do you think they'll start to back down from all the stringent measures? Or do you think that there's a part of them that's motivated to, like, double down and keep doing this? I think there's certainly a motivation to stick to these measures until this fall when you have the party Congress where she is expected to get a third term. Um, but, you know, these types of lockdown measures can't last forever. Um, and so the challenge for the government at whatever time they decide to loosen up will be how they message that to the people after they have spent, as we discussed earlier, these past two years conveying one message. How do you then convey, okay, it's time to change direction. We're not saying that what we did before was wrong. We're just saying now is time for a different approach. Um, and that's a little bit of a delicate balancing act. It will require the confluence of a lot of factors, such as, again, increasing the elderly vaccination rate, um, and also undoing some of the fear that they have really helped instill in people about the virus. I mean, there, there has been a lot of emphasis by Chinese propaganda that, you know, Omicron can still be deadly. Um, you know, we can't think of this as more fatal. The West is just kind of, you know, a, a, a graveyard. Um, so there's been a lot of, you know, what you could call fear mongering, and they're going to have to undo a little bit of that before they can get the public ready to accept a change in direction. All right. Um, Vivian Wong, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.